If you have your Bibles, uh, open them with me to uh, the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, right after the book of Proverbs. We'll be reading the first uh, 11 verses, I think. The word of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain from all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Now today, I am going to give you kind of uh, the Lambert version of Cliff Notes. I'm going to go through the whole book of Ecclesiastes in, let's say, 20 minutes, preacher speaking. Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, to start with, the title would be, Everything You Need to Know About Life, Almost. Um, you notice the way this starts. The preacher gives us his conclusion uh, the very, uh, right after the title. In verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And the book ends with the preacher's message in chapter 12, verse 8, and he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. He ends it exactly the way he starts it. That's his conclusion about life. You want to know about life? The preacher says, I can tell you. It's vanity. And the Hebrew word there is a really interesting word. It means uh, vapor, breath, smoke. Life is a breath. What does that make you think of in English? Well, it's got this, uh, the same uh, meaning in Hebrew. Life is a breath. It is fleeting. It's temporary. You're not here very long. You may think 80 years or 90 years is quite a bit of time. But in the history of the world, it's nothing. It's a breath. The other thing about uh, the Hebrew word, it also carries the idea of um, worthlessness. 
What can you do with a breath? Vapor. It's worthless. In fact, sometimes some of the prophets talk about idols that, that the Canaanites were worshiping, and they call them this same word. They're just a breath. They're vapor. They're nothing. You're worshiping a worthless thing. That's what the preacher is telling us about your life. What is your life? It's a breath. It's worth nothing, and it's going away instantly. Now, why does he say that? What does he base this kind of, con of a conclusion on? Well, it's the inability of humans to make sense of the world around them and to see any coherent pattern. Is there any plan for your life? Can you see it? The preacher says he's tried everything, and no, you can't. A key verse would be uh, chapter 3, verse 11 where he says, he, talking about God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And this is the curse. He has put eternity in the heart of man. Yet so as man cannot figure it out. We need to see the big picture. We need to know a purpose and a meaning in life. And we're not capable of finding it, says the preacher. Now, animals don't have that problem. If any of you have a dog and you spend a lot of time with that dog, you know a lot of his characteristics, like when it uh, uh, sees something in the grass and is looking at it, it'll lift one paw while it's looking. And uh, there are more, uh, dogs are more interested in scents than they are in the sight. And so when they meet a new dog, uh, you know what they want to smell first. Uh, dogs are very predictable. And one of the key things about dogs is they live for the moment. Our dog, Abishag, who has since gone on. She had uh, joie de vivre, the French would say. And uh, if I would start to take her outside, we'd go through the garage, and the garage door, I'd hit the button, the garage door would start going up. The first thing Abishag would do would be stick her head down there and look to see if there were any cats to chase. She's living for the moment, interested in everything. She didn't worry about the future. The past gave her no neurosis. She had no problems in life because she was focused on that minute. Give her food and she was happy. Humans can't live by that. That's not enough for us because God has put the big picture, the need for the big picture in our hearts. And the preacher says, we can't find it. Now, why does he say that? First of all, because there's no discernible goal that we can see. The world goes on with or without you. I got a taste of this when my father was dying from a brain tumor. I came home from the mission field, and uh, he was in the hospital, 
And I can remember uh, go, uh, visiting him in the hospital uh, day after day. One day I was driving, it was a beautiful, sunny August day, middle of summer, beautiful. Driving to the hospital and thinking, my dad is dying. Here, everybody else is doing summer things. They're enjoying themselves. The sun is shining. My dad is dying. My life is changing forever. And the world is going on like nothing had happened. Abishag never worried about that kind of thing. But people do. So, chapter 8, verse 17 says, I saw the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims he knows it, he cannot find it out. The second problem is the preacher noticed that there's no retribution for what people do. Now, this is a hard one. We Christians don't believe that. So let's hear what the preacher bases this on. In chapter 8, verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this also is vanity. Chapter 9, verse 11. Again, I saw that under the, under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. You may be a good Christian. You pray regularly, you go to church regularly, and you get run over by a car tomorrow. You may be really concerned about your health and what you eat. You don't have high cholesterol, and uh, you've, uh, you've done your exercises, you're living a healthy life, and you die of cancer within a month. There's no guarantee that you'll be here in another week. No matter how old or how young you are, there's no guarantees. You don't know what's going to happen. Good people die. Bad people live on and on and keep on causing trouble. So there's no regular retribution that you can count on. Whatever you do, you don't see immediate consequences a lot of times. But the real killer is death. There's universal death. The rich or poor, the wise or the foolish, the good or the bad, the religious or the irreligious, Chapter 2, verse 14, the wise person ha uh, has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to them all. Death. Chapter 3, verse 19, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As the one dies, 
so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. Chapter 9, verse 2. It's the same for all. Since the same events happen to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant in the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. And then in chapter 9, uh, Uh, verse 9, it says, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Here the preacher is saying, Enjoy your wife because you're going to die. Enjoy your food and your drink. Uh, enjoy the work that you're doing because it's going to go away in a hurry and the days of death are interminable. Death wrecks everything. And something that's even worse for the ancients, I don't know if it affects us Americans as much or not. Maybe it does. It certainly does my wife. The preacher found out that after you die, you are forgotten. Any honor that you gain is lost when you die because within a generation, nobody's going to remember you ever lived. That's really painful for ancient people. Their heritage was so important to them. And so in chapter 9, verse 5, he says... For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. If you think you have a legacy and a heritage, uh, and you, you, you plan your will so that uh, money will keep funneling uh, to people in the future, don't count on it. People forget in a hurry. So, how does the preacher uh, come to these conclusions that there, there is no discernible goal, that there's no regular retribution for your actions, and that everybody dies? He uses the method of personal experience. He, uh, well, in more technical terms, philosophical terms, he uses the inductive method. He is an empiricist, a naturalist. He's using his personal experience and what he observes in the world to draw his conclusions. Now, can any man do any better than that? But the, 
the disadvantage of that is your personal experience is only what you can see in your limited sphere. You're limited in space, you're limited in time, and you're limited in the natural realm. And that's the key thing to understand as you read the book of Ecclesiastes. He uses the word vanity 38 times through the book. Everything is vain, vapor, breath, fleeting. But he uses the word, the phrase, under the sun, 29 times. It's a key phrase. Everything he's observed is under the sun. And one point, he even says, God is in heaven and you are on earth. So keep your words few. Don't promise much to God. He's up there and he's in control and you can't get to him. You don't know what he's thinking in heaven. You're down here on earth. So he's limited by his personal experience. Now philosophers have used the experience of uh, the church tradition. They've used the experience from scientific investigations. But once again, those are all limited experiences. There's only so much you can do under the sun in this natural environment. You can't know what God is thinking up there unless God tells you. So the teacher's method is personal experience. In chapter 1, verse 13, he says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now, let's get to the preacher's uh, explanation about God. And he tells us two basic things about God. And I think this is, this is really important because it's all anybody can get on their own. The first thing he says about God is God controls everything. In chapter 6, verse 2, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. Chapter 8, verse 15, I commend joy for the man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful for this uh, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. God is in control. The circumstances in your personal life are under God's control. Why do you look the way you look? Why do you live where you live? Because God set it up. God set things up that way. Uh, there's a a story that impacted me quite a bit. It's a novel by Frank Schaefer called uh, Port, uh, Portofino. And it's about an evangelical missionary family working in Europe. And once a, a year, they go on vacation to the Italian city of Portofino. And this, uh, this little boy, 10-year-old Calvin Becker, is a real rascal. And uh, the scene starts that I'm going to read for you here at uh, the dinner table in a restaurant. He's just worked it so that his sister gets sent to her room. And uh, uh, he's thinking that this was uh, good. 
uh, because he knows God is in control of everything. And maybe she's being sent to her room because something's going to fall on the seat where she was sitting and God is uh, going to protect her. You know, that's why she's uh, been disciplined, sent to her room. So he's working on God being in control of everything, God knowing everything, and God uh, predestining things. So as she goes up the stairs to her room, he gets the salt shaker there and uh, starts experiments with it at the table. My experiment was to see if I could do something halfway and then stop or change it so fast that I could get ahead of or even beat the sovereignty of God. I started to pour out a little salt onto the table, but just as more was about to come out, I suddenly stopped and started to shake the rice around in the cellar so God would lose count of the grains of salt. Then I started to put it down, but instead yanked it up above my head, and I did it so fast that salt came out all over me. In a way, that was good, since God is sovereign. He knows your thoughts all the time, so how could I do something he hadn't planned for since the beginning of time? I was glad when the salt came down all over my head because it was a surprise to me, and so it might have been a surprise to God. But then I figured he knew I was going to do this thing with the salt before I was born. So he was probably still sovereign, and John Calvin was right and had God figured. While I was thinking this, Dad said, what on earth did you do that for? And before I thought, I just blurted out, God made me do it. <laughs> That's a 10-year-old uh, working out God being in control. We may be a little more sophisticated in our thinking about God and him being in control. The preacher certainly was, and he spent years checking things out and coming to the conclusion that we can't know what God is thinking, and since God is in control, that makes everything meaningless for us. Any purpose you might set up, God can wreck it. So that's the first thing that he says about God. The second thing he says about God is that God gives gifts. Uh, we've already run into that in a couple of verses. Let, let me uh, read uh, two more. Chapter 3, verse 13. Everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Chapter 5, verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink, find enjoyment in the toil which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everything you need to know about life is there, almost. You see, the thing that he has left out is revelation. You can't know what God is thinking unless God tells you. And God has told us in Jesus Christ. This is the exciting part of the message here. Now, when we go to the New Testament, we find that God is in control And it's for the good of his people. It's for the good of those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter uh, 8 of Romans, let me read you Romans 8, 28 and 29. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God is working all of creation. Everything is happening in the world for the good of those that believe in his son, Jesus Christ, the church, Christians. But it gets even better than that. God has dealt with death. In that same chapter, Romans 8, 31 and 32, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Paul is thinking about Abraham. You remember when God asked Abraham to kill his son as a sacrifice? Genesis chapter 22. And Abraham was faithful. He was ready to do that. Because in those days, people did kill other people for sacrifices. So it wouldn't have been outside the experience of Abraham to have known about human sacrifice. So he took his son Isaac up on the mountain and prepared him on the altar and took his knife and was going to kill him. But God spared Abraham's son. God stopped him and provided a ram caught in the thicket to substitute for Isaac. But in the New Testament, when God sends his son to take care of your sins, he didn't spare him like he spared Abraham's son. He let Jesus die on the cross. And he let him die so your sins could be taken away and so that you could have life because he raised Jesus up from the grave three, uh, three days later. Now, let's, let's think about the implications of what uh, Paul has told us here. He didn't spare his own son. He gave up his most precious possession. Nothing is more precious to God the Father than his son Jesus. And he let him die on the cross. He let him live a perfect life here on earth and get abused, made fun of, taken advantage of, and then he let him die to take away your sins. An illustration came to my mind um, years ago. In uh, 1967, that was the first heart transplant. It was, a, it was a major event in those days. And I can still remember Christian Barnard, a South African uh, surgeon, uh, had studied and thought he was able to uh, do all the reconnecting and put a human heart from someone else into a person whose heart was going bad. And it so happened that day, December the 3rd, 1967, that a pedestrian, a, a young woman walking across the street, was hit by a car and was killed. And uh, her uh, family donated her heart, and he put it in a 54-year-old man, <clears throat> and uh, he had a 30-person team working with many other doctors and nurses for five hours. And the operation was successful. 
and Louis Waskansky lived a heart transplant. Now, just for fun, let's, let's make up this scenario. Uh, Louis Waskansky is alive, and uh, they've got him in a room that is totally sterile. Nobody can go in there without uh, washing, putting on clean, uh, special clothes, a uh, face mask, and uh, doctors, nurses, anyone in that room has to go through all those procedures. And uh, they're giving him drugs so, so that his heart will not, reje uh, not be rejected. And three days in, the nurse comes to the doctor as he's looking at the chart, and she says, uh, the patient is doing very well, but he seems a little weak, and I think he needs uh, some vitamins. A shot of vitamins would really help. And the doctor gets really angry. Imagine this. The doctor says, what? After we spent thousands upon thousands of dollars and all of this effort, do you think we're going to give him a shot? Not one penny more for this man. That's ridiculous. After the effort that they've put into that and the money that they've spent to that, do you think they would keep from doing anything necessary to keep him alive? Well, God has given his most precious possession. He's uh, worked it from uh, the start of the Bible with Adam and Eve. He promised that he was going to make a way of salvation. And he built up to it through all of the ages to bring Jesus to earth. He let him live a perfect life in your place. He let him die a terrible death to take away your sins. He uh, raised him from the dead so that you can have eternal life. Do you think God is going to say, well, that's just too much. That, is, that sin is over the limit. I quit. That's never going to happen. He who spared not his own son to deliver him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Praise be to God that Ecclesiastes' message is right almost because it's missing revelation. It's what you can find out under the sun. It's not what you can find out when God speaks. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have spent this time looking at the preacher's message, and it's really true. It's inspired but it's not complete. And Father, we fall into that category. We often lose our sights. We forget that there is a purpose. We forget that you have told us what it is. And we go after our own purposes. Forgive us. And give us repenting hearts today that we might see that you are not only in control, but that you have promised that you will work all things for the good of those who accept your son Jesus. And we ask this blessing in his name. Amen.